are, yeah, we are recording. Uh, we said that at the same time. And this is the old school. We have Ross Miller and Steve Bourgeois. Bourgeois. Um, it occurred to me and to you that uh, nobody out there may know anything about us. And uh, we might be... In all likelihood, yes. Yeah, particularly you. Well, even me. So... Uh, what does that I'll, mean, in particular me? Well, um, why, don't, why don't you give your um, bio, but not a full bio, just, you know, teaching, basically. Just and, hit the highlights? Yeah, and you get uh, 45 seconds uh, and cram it all into that. Well, 45 seconds. I started out as a child in um, the great city of Baltimore. It sounds like a long story already. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 I'm I'm building up. Uh, I'm about to bring it home. So, um, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, but no, I, I, after, after a stint in the military, I I got my degree to teaching from Northeast Louisiana. And then I started teaching in 96 in Texas and um, got my master's degree in history in 2004. None of that adds up already. I have to stop you because you mentioned (laughs) Maryland, Baltimore for about two seconds. And you mentioned Louisiana and Texas. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think people trust your story already. I'm a traveled man. (laughs) Okay. I've been places. So go back to 2000 and somehow you ended up in Texas. No, it was 96. I ended up in Texas. So 95, I graduated from college. 95, I went to Maryland thinking jobs would fall into my lap. Yeah. And was shocked to find that that was not the case. <laughs> well, and so, um, so someone I had gone to school with had suggested coming down to Texas, and so came down to the state of my birth, where it all began—a full circle, if you will—the circle of life back in Texas. So, is there anything here about your teaching record that I actually inquired about? What well, just I've been teaching since '96. That's it. That, yeah. Um, I've been, to, I've been teaching kindergarten. I mean, give us a little more. Well, on here. I've been teaching mainly high schoolers. So uh, teaching at uh, four different schools. So over so, the past 25 years. So yeah, all in the North Texas area. Okay. So by choice, you've put yourself in, in a room with high school kids for 25 years. Yes. Little bastards. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of there's the sucking sound of, of the life force leaving you and going into that. No, but they're fine. They're fine. They they're they're smart. They're clever. Uh, not as curious as I'd like, but um, well, but some shine. So okay, and and they scare easily. They can. Yeah, a little so, skittish. When you're a guy, I think I think it's I think it is easier. I mean, if you're a guy with any kind of self self-confidence or what have you. I mean, you can walk into a room of high schoolers uh, potentially and kind of announce your presence with authority, as it's been said. Um, It's tough for females. I have a young student, a young lady who used to be a former student who's doing observations right now uh, in my class. Um, And she's a, she's a great young lady. She's smart. She's clever. She wants to be a teacher, but she's going to have to deal with that, especially in the high school level. All these yahoos seeing a a young woman, um, they're gonna they're gonna push, and she's gonna need to be able to push back. So there are confrontations, actually, a lot of them all day. Yes, and, and it's really good for the teacher to win those, particularly mm-hmm. the public ones. 
Sure. Um, well, um, what about uh, you? What about me? Um, well, it, it goes way back to 1987. I student taught in Eugene, Oregon, and um, then started teaching uh, German in 1988, and really almost uninterrupted. I took a few years where I was mainly doing music. Um, and by the way, just so the people know, some of these musical clips so far, all of them are my recordings on piano. Um, so I've been a musician and a teacher. Um, I consider teaching my day job for a lot of those years. Um, at some point, I actually became a teacher, but I moved to Texas in 94, so really very close to where you were. Mm -hmm. So we were pretty much neighbors, but didn't know, know each other. Um, I, I came to Texas in 94 and taught in Fort Worth. Uh, little traveling, my wife and I moved to Michigan for a year to teach um, Newark, Ohio, outside of Columbus, and then back to Texas. So lots of different schools. And I counted it up 25 years also in the classroom. And then I got a doctorate in educational leadership and went over to the dark side and became an administrator, not a campus administrator, but a district administrator, executive director of research for a big organization, big charter school organization where we both worked for a bit. So that's really our connection. Um, I think it you've was- been You've been surrounded by pinheads, <laughs> desk-bound desk pinheads for the last couple of years, have you not? Um, what are you talking about with the pinheads? Well, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, see, this is where the, the audience needs a little background. <laughs> but you and I, for our many differences, not least of which your affinity for, or your lack of affinity for certain kinds of music. Um, but, <laughs> I had um, no idea what you were going to say there, but when no, you said no. affinity, I got nervous. <laughs> <laughs> But no, we have a lot that binds us together, not, not least of which are, of course, our teaching experience, our, uh, some of our many shared ideals about said teaching experience. Well, together. So we were yes. at, at a charter school for, I think, five years together. Is that right? Yeah. A bastion of sanity and a sea of turmoil. <laughs> <laughs> if you will. Okay, uh, I will. So, so that was my my story. A little bit more succinct than yours, uh, more coherent. Um, I did some university teaching, um, and so I, I teach in a doctoral program, educational leadership, uh, and also a classical education department at the University of Dallas. Um, and I do a lot of writing, and, and we've done some writing together. So, some of the topics we get into are right out of our book uh, that's forthcoming. Um, and I've done a lot of research articles, both quantitative and qualitative. And so we are writers and uh, between the two of us, I think uh, Ross is, is Mr. Miller is uh, a better talker than I am. So the, the show that we're doing often comes, I, I feed straight lines and, and <laughs> Mr. Miller uh, makes the most work. <laughs> well, <laughs> occasionally. Sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. But no, I, I think um, I think one of the things that made us believe that we could perhaps carry something like this off is the fact that both of us have a skill set that lends to this type of format, both in our interpersonal interactions with one another, but you know also our knowledge, our, the way we view things, a certain je ne sais quoi. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you are a, a fluent French speaker. Uh, 
or fluent. Pr- approaching fluency. We both speak German. Yeah. And we have and, some experiences together in overseas. Germany. Yes. And we've taken students there. I don't know how many times together. I've I've taken about eight or nine groups uh, mm-hmm. myself. And I guess the last four or five were with Mr. Miller. And so we'll delve into that occasionally. Could be its own. It could be its own episode. Um, I think so. We just won't um, share the idea that we're doing it with the Germans. <laughs> um, There's but, no reason they should know. No, but but I think we often re- represent or mention the Germans. Uh, yes. Quotation marks. It's just a the collective <laughs> identity of the Germans. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, what are we talking about today besides ourselves? Well, you had mentioned the idea of television more. Precisely, Sesame Street. What are you? What are your thoughts about that? Well, you go off um, when when someone mentions Elmo, it sets you off on a tirade. Um, but we 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 do agree, both of us, that there you know some there's something unsettling about using television, computers, whatever it is, uh, for teaching. Um, the entertainment aspect of it. Um, it makes us scratch our heads some to some point. And, and I think our argument to some extent comes from Neil Postman, his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, among others. Um, but there, there's something troubling about <clears throat> taking, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, something that, that we consider a serious craft, you know, teaching and being able to engage a group of students um, and then substitute it for entertainment. And, you know, I would say that that pressure to entertain um, compromised our integrity as teachers and put a lot of pressure on us um, to entertain. And you know, we really, I think, both of us ag- agree that you know, teaching is not always entertaining. You know, sometimes it's just work, um, but learning should be its own reward, and the entertainment, um, you know, shouldn't be really even a question. Um, we we should teach. Um, period, and not try to entertain. Well, I don't know how, because I don't know if we've ever specifically talked about this. This is a little bit outside of our lane, as it were. But I think you could make the case that, for example, I have a six-year-old. She's in first grade. And there probably is something to be said for mixing in what we would derisively call fun as part of the education process. But the problem is, is that it never stops at those grades. Uh, the fun continues. And when I say fun, I'm not talking about the idea of, of enjoyment, which learning could provide its own level of fun. Now, can you back definition. up a second, Mr. Miller, because you froze. Yes. Um, and you, you said did. the word fun, and then I, I'm, I want to know what you just said. Well, it could be that uh, the word fun freaked out the internet. So I think, so. I think that we're getting a little pushback now. Powers <laughs> that be is listening right now. Let's hope so or not. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I think, I think we can agree that there is a place for kind of a more of a game oriented kind of learning process. If you're talking about kindergartners or you're talking about first grade or second grade or what have you. But I think our issues focus on, um, when that approach carries over into middle school and even high school, I think that's where we shake our heads and think to ourselves, 
if the purpose of educating is to be able to move beyond the infancy stage, why the hell are we still in the infancy stage with some of the things that we do and some of the things that teachers do and that administrators mandate, or not mandate, strongly encourage teachers to do? Uh, why are we still doing that at high school? It's like there's a, a pressure to make our subject interesting um, and the idea of dressing it up with um, technology, with image, um, it's, it's a lot of pressure. There, there's that song, which you probably know because you're a child of the 90s to some extent, the song by Nirvana. Uh, the first line uh, is, here we are now, entertain us. And, and it's a frightening song when you think about being in a room with about 20, 25, 30 high school kids, and, and they're all thinking that entertain us or we're going to tune out. Right. Um, the truth is most teachers aren't that entertaining, you know, on their own. They're not that, <laughs> they're not as, as, as funny as we are. They can't hold, hold their yeah. own, you know, keeping their audience. And so what do they do? You know, you have to fall back on, you know, back in the nineties, two thousands, the television, um, there, there was that terrible moment. I don't know. I can't tell when, maybe you can, when the television itself didn't <clears throat> reach the students anymore, used to be, be able to bring in the TV VCR and they would be wrapped with interest, staring up there quietly until you turn it off. Um, but then it changed. You know, they needed more than that. They needed control of the remote or something. Hmm. Well, I think I think as soon as you saw TVs become standard in the classroom, that's when it starts getting boring. When you have constant access to it. You know, when I first started, you had to go down. I mean, again, I hate to kind of do another story of, you know, when I first started teaching. But when I first started teaching, you had to go down to the library, get it. It was kind of an ordeal. You're talking about the big stand with the yeah. TV on it and you have to parade down the hallway. Yeah, and it made, and it made a noise, not unlike <laughs> every time you went to the ice cream machine at the local Golden Corral. You know, everyone saw you doing it. You know, you tried to be you tried to be coy. You tried to go under the radar for your fifth ice cream cone, but it's hard to do that, you know? And so every time you got the TV, it's hard to pass, pass up the judgment that you're getting from the other teachers. You know, they, for would, they, would, they would actually laugh at you. <laughs> so you're taking another day off. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like masterpiece theater next door, you know? So. <laughs> uh, so what do you think about the quality of that learning experience? I mean, I, you know, during my time, I, I, I use that TV quite often. I mean, I, I used it when I had substitutes. That was an easy lesson plan to sure. have, have somebody else do that. But I did it myself. And, and at, at, you know, many times I have to admit, I, I would use it for grading papers. And the students were watching that and throw a few questions at that, you know, on the board later. But, but it wasn't the best of teaching by any means. Well, you can certainly make the case that it's not the it's not the means by which we teach, it's how it's utilized and what is supposed to be taken from it and what, and how do you judge what you get from it? You know? And so, you know, I, you know, I don't think there's a teacher alive that has not at one point or another used a television or used something on YouTube or what have you to be able to bring something across. But if it's the soul of your lesson, and it's not being used simply to kind of set something else up, something of more substance. 
I think that's when you start to teeter on the edge of, you know, either you you're using technology or technology is using you, you know, which, you know, which, which side of the paragraph, uh, the paradigm you happen to fall on. But, uh, but I think that's where the danger exists is how you use it. And we talked about that with regards to Sesame street. Yeah. Um, and, you know, from my subject, of course, the history channel, which is just absolute rubbish, you know, Wait a minute. But, they, they give you all kinds of great discoveries, you know, about ancient cultures. It's like, wow, I never knew that. And, uh, they give you uh, ancient discoveries at pawn shops, and yeah, what happens that, if you? What happens when you buy a storage locker just randomly? You know, what could be in there? You know, that's you know, and of course, you know, there's there's something to the idea that the History Channel was also known as the Hitler Channel. That's what the HC actually stood for. You know, just. Hitler's generals, Hitler's SS, Hitler's dogs, Hitler's ladies, you know, whatever, just anything, the Hitler channel. So <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> so you, you have an animosity to the history channel, but a lot of students develop their interest in history by watching that. And they, they seem to think I love history. And then they come to your class and, and find it, rather boring. How do you handle that? Well, I don't handle it well, Mr. Bourgeois, <laughs> Dr. Bourgeois. I don't handle it well at all, you know, because, and we talked about this before, you know, you sitting there, you know, little Johnny's always liked history. That's because history's never asked anything of little Johnny, except to sit there and stare at the television. You know, the problem is, is that history, not unlike other sciences is a legitimate field of study that requires something of its participants. And it's acolytes. You just can't sit there and just be awashed in historical information. You got to be able to know how to do something about it and with it. But well, I'll let you grumble a little bit. The um, <laughs> I think you're trying to get me riled up again. I am. I'm, I'm, I was in a good mood actually this time around. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's let's jump to to AP, you know, history courses. Um, there are a lot of great resources on the internet and many students can get a four or even a five on that exam without cracking a book. You know, they're not reading history, which sounds odd, um, but rather um, they are watching it in little clips that are tied directly to the test and, and they don't crack that book at all. What do you think of that? Well, as in general, it is it is part of a kind of a, an approach that's fostered, that's encouraged, that asks the student not to approach a subject honestly. And here we're not just talking about history. You know, I teach AP U.S. history, but I mean, you, you, know, you could talk about AP bio. You could talk about AP whatever math class there is of AP, you know. But when the overriding narrative is not how to understand the subject, but how to game it. You know, what are the shortcuts? What are the angles? What are the tricks? Go to a bookstore right now. Everybody listening right now, I want you to look up on your silly phone, your infernal device, and I want you to find the nearest bookstore. You may have to travel because they're not as plentiful as they used to be. But as soon as you get done listening to this very informative podcast, I want you to go out and find a bookstore. And then I want you to go to the test prep section. 
And all you have to do is look at the front cover, tips, strategies, you know, all these other kind of language that is telling kids the important thing here is not to learn the subject. The important thing is to figure out how to gain the system. So, you know, you walk into an average school and if they're particularly pretentious, they have a motto statement hand-painted and crafted on a wall somewhere as soon as you enter into the building. And the mission statement will say something about creating lifelong learners and in a diverse culture. And it's all this, all this kind of buzzwords. But it doesn't mean crap because there's nothing about our approach, certainly about AP classes, that suggests any affinity for the hard work that goes into mastering anything. It's all about getting to the test and then you just sit there like Pontius Pilate at the end, just washing your hands of it. And then you're on to the next one, you know, with no more thought given to what you just spent a year doing. So I, I think I did rile you up. Uh, we were talking about <laughs> television a, a little bit ago, and, and yeah. now you're talking about test prep. And I wonder if there is a connection between the two. If you recall, you know, back when we could show a full movie, um, there was an attention span of, of students. They, they could, you know, watch a movie, they, you know, even in, in school. Um, and it seems like the, the clips have gotten shorter and shorter in the attention. I mean, you look at the YouTube clips that I referenced earlier, um, they're relatively short um, and relatively focused on, on a test, ultimately. So, so if these were clips uh, where you have maybe a, a, a great lecturer like yourself talking about history, that's one thing. But, but these are strategies um, that are so tied to a test. And I think somehow television and the computer ha have allowed that to happen you know, more than was uh, available to students you know, back a, a generation or two. Well, it's like anything. I mean, you, you start with your first beer. And pretty soon beer's not enough, you know, and you're looking for, you're looking for something else, you know, I don't even drink. Mr. I know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like your first, your first beer, or your first joint or your first, uh, just, you know, whatever, you know, that, that will only sustain you so long. And then you need something more. And so to suggest that, Hey, if we introduce this technology, you're just feeding into kind of a collective ADD syndrome that, this, that students have, and we have fostered, created. So it's, a, it's, it's an element of teaching that is problematic, that is embraced more for short-sighted reasons than any, certainly anything, certainly uh, compared to any long-term considerations. So well, I think, and, and I think you can tie that back to introducing television and things of that nature into the classroom. Well, there, there came a time when you didn't have to wheel in that TV. Um, I mean, I can remember, you know, having to, when you wanted to rent a video, if you didn't have a VCR, you'd also rent the, the machine and bring yes. it home. Uh, the same thing applies to, to schools. You know, you had to bring the television and the VCR mm -hmm. together along with your, uh, the, the film or whatever it is itself. But a little bit later, um, schools started putting televisions, you know, 
in the room itself, you know, usually in the corner mounted. And the idea was that now you don't, you know, everybody has a television. And that, and that was almost a, a tipping point. Um, it took no effort now just to put in that, uh, that film or whatever it is that you're going to watch. But they started playing news in the morning. Do you remember that? There, there was like a regular news that everybody could watch, kind of a shared experience, which you know, I think is a good idea if people would talk about it. You right. Know, you know, that's a, a great way to start a conversation. But I do remember, you know, 9-11 that morning when that happened. You know, I was teaching in Ohio and we did have a, a television uh, in the corner, you know, you know, watching history happen before our eyes. And um, the powers that be sent a directive immediately saying, turn off the television you know, at, that, at that moment and, and keep teaching, um, but, but actually ignore what's happening around us right now. Well, I taught at the time, I taught at a school that was not clearly as endowed as your school with televisions. So, so uh, we didn't have televisions on, you know, in our classrooms. Um, I taught more on the frontier uh, compared to your gilded surroundings. Gilded. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but even still, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's problematic, you know, in one way it's, it's, uh, it's good in another, but, you know, without that, without that presence of the television, you know, we didn't have that distraction, but then we had the distraction of rumors and uh, hearsay and, you know, um, and of course it kind of feeds it. And then the local authorities didn't help much. I think the local television state, one of the local te television stations suggested that parents should pull their kids out of school. So this is like 12 o'clock on that day. And, and so all of a sudden just kids are just being pulled out left and right as if somewhere in a cave in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda sat there and said to themselves, okay, we really want to hit America hard and where it hurts. So let's hit the World Trade Center. Let's hit the Pentagon. And oh, yes, let's take out Northside High School in Fort Worth. Let's make sure that thing is reduced to rubble. Um, only then can we truly claim victory. You know, and so all these parents sitting there just running to the school to get their kid out. For what reason? You know, and not that there isn't reason to be concerned, just in general. I'm just not sure that's where the concern needs to be, you know, and it created a bit of a panic. And for kids who didn't really understand what was happening, it created kind of a farcical environment in the school. And um, so, yeah, I, mean, I, th I think it can serve a place. But as you said, it has to kind of be conjoined with conversation. And we don't do well with conversation. Well, if, if we think about that television and, and the whole argument we're making and, and then jump ahead and apply it to, you know, the computer, the internet, all, all, all these things that are surrounding us now, it seems like the argument not only holds, but becomes much more profound. Um, we, we've talked about screen time and remote learning and, and having uh, kids spend their whole day uh, really in a, I guess you would call it a gamified context. Um, you mentioned gamification a, a little bit earlier. Um, and I wonder if that is, uh, I'm sure it hasn't crept into your classroom, but has it crept into your school? 
Oh, yes. And it's been there for some time. You know, I, th I think that's part of that carryover from elementary school that's never meant to go beyond elementary school. I mean, if I recall correctly, although you're more the expert in this arena, I mean, Nietzsche even conceded that how you teach a kid is going to be commiserate with how old the kid is. And that at the very youngest stages, there's got to be a little bit of play mixed in with how you learn. But the whole idea is that as you get older, you should be capable of more older things, older processes, more adult processes, conversation, analysis, things that truly lend itself to understanding a subject, be it history, also known as the backbone of the American education system, <laughs> yeah. or something as perverse as mathematics. All of those things can be enhanced by simply a more grown-up process and approach toward the subject. But well, I'm afraid that our ideas are not widely held. No. Um, I, I had an opportunity um, to work with a, a company that created online math, and it was a supplemental program that many s schools were purchasing. And so when I was uh, an executive director of research, one of the things uh, I did was, you know, pay, you know, decide which of these programs to, that we would pay a lot of money for. So I researched them and they kind of wind and dined me actually, because they, they, I wasn't the final decision maker, but I was the one who was informing the decision maker. Um, so I got to know th this company uh, down in Houston. And at, at one point they asked me to speak uh, to them. Um, and, and that was kind of interesting because I, I pictured, you know, 10 or 12 people in the room at lunch. It was kind of a lunch and learn thing. Um, and I came in there and there were about 40 people packed in there. And then they also recorded it on, uh, you know, had it playing live on a stream of the video. So their whole company was watching it. And uh, I took a deep breath and thought, wow, here's my opportunity to to tell them a few things. And, and so I shared some of my own research on motivational theory. And one of the things about gamification that I, I told them is just what you said, that it needs to be phased out over time. Because if you're giving a, a small incentive for each little success, eventually the student starts to anticipate the reward and, and certainly doesn't develop a pure love of learning in, in that area. In fact, it creates the idea that uh, this is not worth anything on its own. Um, so it, it was kind of interesting to make that point to a, a group, you know, that was, they were tasked to gamify math. That was their whole purpose. And I guess I said it in a really nice way. You know, I, I didn't say, you need to stop what you're doing right now. You're, <laughs> you're, you're messing up a whole generation of kids and, and you're the culprit here. Uh, look around you. These people are um, taking our educational system and, and putting it into the ground. But I did tell them, you know, that this can be very effective uh, for younger kids, but you must transition them out of that uh, or, or you're, you're really part of the problem. And so that was kind of the tone I took, but it was quite an interesting conversation with them. Do you remember our come to Jesus moment on this subject? Um, uh, do tell. It was in a conference room in a hotel outside of San Antonio. We were at a conference together and we were sitting in a history workshop. That was here. That was up, up in Fort Worth, I think. 
Was it? Yeah. Okay. It the Gaylord, but yeah, I know what you mean. It was a conference, and they're sitting there talking about their 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 foundational premise for the strategies they were trying to get us to use. These are teachers. So the teachers these are teachers. Were, okay, they were conducting professional development in a conference setting. Their foundational premise was that history can be boring. Well, they said that, right? They said it. Um, I remember that because they they said, of course, we all know that history is boring and, and you kind of rose up <laughs> and I think I had to like grab you or physically restrain you at that time. I was like, the hell, where am I? Where am I right now? These bastards up here saying that history is boring. You might as well make fun of my daughter. I, I don't understand. Well, they had a good debate on that, if you recall. They were oh yes, oh, they were yes. talking about the value of using M and M's or Skittles, and 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 other teachers got into it and said, "Well, we found that Skittles really worked." Oh yeah, they love them. <laughs> if only Pavlov could have been there. <laughs> it was the dumbest. Oh God, what a stupid conference that was! How offensive! And I'm not just talking about from the position of a history teacher. But anybody who values their subject, no matter what the subject is, math, German, what have you, how do you sit there and say that history is boring? What does it say about you? <laughs> what a schmuck. Sister makes a life career decision to follow a, 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 a pathway that you inherently find boring. What does that say about you? I don't, I don't get it. You know? Well, even with, with my, my dog, I have a dog. I, I don't, um, I give him rewards to do things, you know, but not all the time. And when I send him to his kennel, his little cage where he sleeps at night, um, I, I'm not giving him anything. And he just, I just say, go to your kennel, you know, and he goes. Um, but the idea of, you know, there, there's something in the psychological field called the over-justification effect. Mm. Um, and and it's um, giving a reward to something that is already interesting, like reading. Right. You know, there, there, there's a major study about paying students to read. And um, the idea is that reading by itself is interesting. But when you pay them for that also, I know a lot of parents do that uh, over the summer, you know, they're going to find it, um, it actually is demotivational in the long run. Because at some point they're going to want more money, or they're right. going to want more rewards. Yeah, they, know, they they start to anticipate it, and and you're really communicating that the that the task is is not interesting. So imagine exactly doing that in, in the classroom, you know, compromising. <laughs> I mean, it's already hard enough to keep the interest of students, but you're doing a technique um, that that undermines that. This could go in about 50 different directions, which thankfully is helpful for us because that means we have at least 50 more podcast episodes that can center on some aspect of this idea. But, um, you know, one of the things I want to stress, because I think it's too easy of a counter argument that people will say, well, you just don't like technology or you're just a bunch of curmudgeons. That may be true. I may be a curmudgeon. You are. And you're I a, may be. You're a <laughs> maybe. You had a flip phone until about three weeks ago. Yes. But that is not to say that there are not usage 
appropriate usages for technology. But the key is to use it, not to be used by it, as somebody I'm sure a lot smarter than me once said. Probably much smarter. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it just depends upon how you use it and what your expectations are from it. You know, it's just, um, and I'm afraid, well, I'm just afraid. Here, Dr. Bourgeois. <laughs> your, your fear is palpable. Uh, there's, yes. There's a stress around the, the room here. Um, and it all started <laughs> because uh, somebody decided to move a TV into a classroom. Um, to play Big Bird. Yeah. And, and we have nothing. I mean, watching Sesame Street and Elmo, we, we did that with our kids. I mean, we all admit it, you know, because parents want to be able to uh, live their lives and not monitor everything. And, and the idea is, is pretty great. You know, that while kids are sitting around watching TV, why not make it educational? Right. So it sounds good on the face of it, but I guess we both are, are saying that it has some long-term side effects um, that are not necessarily desirable. It's like a nude beach. Uh, excuse me. In principle, it sounds like a good idea, but then when you get there, you're like, yeah, seeing all those cankles and just, you're just thinking to yourself, this is a really bad idea. So Sesame street on its face, you're right. It's, it is a good idea. And especially compared to other things that you'll find on television, certainly it's one of the more worthier endeavors, but, but again, it comes back down to how you use it. So you've never actually seen Sesame street. Is that what you're saying? Well, I've seen it. Um, and, and occasionally, occasionally, um, have you seen Mr. Rogers? Uh, more in retrospect, I don't. Th- I don't think I saw it. I don't think I watched it as a child. No. Well, um, I mean, I would say that that's on a much higher level because he he was teaching and showing. Uh, there were also yeah. segments that were uh, overtly educational, um, and and he's he's teaching behavior. You know how to how to exist in society and, and there's there, so there's a lot of virtues there I, I think we but but the what we're getting at is that that idea has slipped into mm. you know the, into the classroom you know it, it was just in the living room and mm. simply this the young children are expecting the the classroom to look just like um, Sesame Street and when it's not uh-huh. they turn. They turn on you. Yes. They turn X. It's your fault. <laughs> uh, the, the kids, particularly younger kids, are like a, a union. <laughs> you know, we, we, we want this. We want Elmo. We want Elmo. And, and in your case, in high school, um, I'm sure you've done this. Haven't you dressed up as George Washington in, in your class to talk about um, that history? I have never in my life. <laughs> I don't even dress up for Halloween. I'm not dressing up for my students. So, what, what was the movie with Nick Nolte where where that happened? Uh, some teaching movie, maybe it was. It's called, called Teachers. Okay, <laughs> it was Nick Nolte and Joe Beth Williams and um, what? And and the guy who dressed up as Washington later found out was an escapee from a mental asylum. <laughs> That's the sign of a good teacher. Okay, you know, someone a little bit unhinged. Right. But, but those teachers who, who do that tend to get the best appraisals because that looks good. That's a dog and pony show. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think I've, I've ever dressed up. Um, at one point teaching German, uh, somehow my students gave me this funny German hat. You know what German hats look like, <laughs> you know, the old Bavarian hat. And it had like a stein of beer on it to the side, so it looked like I was. And, you know, this was in around 2006 or something like that. And, and this was a wake-up call for me because within about two seconds, I had a class of 25 students all with their cell phones out taking a picture of me. Mm. And they, they just had to do it. Um, but that, but yeah, that and was- And why not? The, why not? That was the why only not? time I put on a hat and I certainly never wore a costume. That's that's kind of weird if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, I just, I know some people that do it and I'm not, I'm not willing to disparage the practice out of hand. Uh, but I think if you do it a lot, I think it brings a certain uh, frivolousness to the process. I'm just not sure it's helpful. So, well, yeah, it's a little creepy to some extent. <laughs> um, but on the other side, you know, some people, some teachers really got a bad rap. I'm talking about coaches and I was a coach that wasn't in my biography, but I, I was a head <laughs> tennis coach for about six years. Um, and I recall when we had matches and it was right in the middle of the season, I, you know, I would go to that TV quite often. Right. And, and so the, you know, the, the teachers who were coaches and I don't want to cast aspersions on, on all coaches, um, but they tended to depend on that type of entertainment more than others. That's my, that was my experience. How about you? Well, yes. I mean, I, and I think it is. And I, I think to extend an olive branch of understanding and sympathy I mean, these are individuals trying to do basically two full-time jobs. Right. And it's it's damn hard to do that. I mean, it's, it's difficult to sit there and try to, to do both things equally well when only one thing will determine whether you stick around or not. And guess what? It ain't what's happening in the classroom. It's the number okay? of W's. <laughs> it's the, the number of W's that's going to determine whether you stay at that school. So you can you can understand just from a human standpoint, you know, the, 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 the fact that, that coaches are going to spend a little bit more effort on the athletic side of things. And um, that's why they get the bad rap. And it's a, it's a, it's a inescapable situation that they find themselves in. Well, to, to dwell a little bit on, on coaches um, to some extent, I would say that some of the best teaching I ever did was on the tennis court. Um, and, and if you think about it, coaches aren't using much technology. Maybe if they're watching films with their students on, you know, football films or something to right. plays. But for the most part, they're depending on other motivators. You know, they're, 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 they're using the team and winning and so forth to, to motivate. But those students are wrapped into it. They're locked in. Uh, they want to be there. Right. And so, so what those coaches do is they create a loyalty and a, the type of thing that we would only dream of in the classroom. I mean, those kids are, you know, ready to, you know, run through walls for that coach. And and I don't think there's any teacher who gets that. Because there's no accolades for doing well in history. I mean, you may get a slap on the back from your history teacher for a job well done, but the band doesn't show up in your hallway for students who <laughs> ace the uh, AP US history test, you know? And again, you know, I, I, I'm showing my biases here as a non-coach, but there certainly is an emphasis on and an almost exclusive fetting of the various athletic programs, you know, because it's a part of the identity of the school and it certainly brings 
you know, good or bad reputations based off what happens on the court or in the field, on the field or what have you. So, so why is it that of all the subjects, you know, that, that I would say most coaches, you know, they teach PE, but there's a whole lot of coaches that they may be overrepresented as social studies teachers. Why is that? <clears throat> I'm not sure. I mean, I have an idea. Well, that's why we're here. I think part of it, <laughs> I think part of it is the, the misperception that less is expected of the history teacher, that less is expected of the history student, both when you're talking about the students that are in front of us, but also the individual teacher as they're going through college, you know, the demands of a history class is seen as less, whether that's true or not, but it's seen as less than an individual trying to um, navigate quantum physics or something along those lines, you know? Well, don't you, don't you work in terms of names and dates as opposed to quadratic formulas? Uh, certainly names and dates come up. I don't deal with them exclusively, mm -hmm. especially the dates parts, but, uh, um, but yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's the perception that it's easy and that perception has grown because of how the subject is, is treated by the practitioners therein, but also from administration, you know, like we said last week, you know, you know, the history test was always a given fine Michigan, you know, uh, yeah, a given, <clears throat> a given that everybody passes. Right. Um, absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll give you one account from Michigan. Okay. Um, um, I was teaching German in Michigan and spent a lot of time in, in the faculty room and it was a room surrounded by books and a, and a nice big table and you know i would spend my conference period in this faculty room and i, I noticed that these were world history books on the shelf hmm. and i thought that's interesting and and a few days went by and then finally there was um you know a history teacher in the room so i, I thought i would ask them about these books and and so i said um, why, why are all these books here? Did, did you adopt a different textbook? What, what's going on? Um, and they said, no, um, we no longer teach world history because it's not on the state test. Oh, okay. Well. Yeah, that makes sense. So they're, so they're not teaching world history anymore. They're teaching us and whatever else, but they just shelved them literally, um, at that point. And, 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 you know, I, I wonder, um, what Clearly, are the, Michigan has forgotten their Kipling. Maybe so, but the you know the the implications of, of that if it's not on the test, we just don't even teach it. That's just asinine. That's it. <laughs> and explains a lot about Michigan, you know. So no, no. I mean, I, I don't mean to disparage. Well, you are. I was born in Michigan, so yes, I understand that, you know. <laughs> but um, you know, Kipling said, "What do they know of England? Who only England knows." You know, if you don't have an understanding of how other people might view you or how other people have dealt with similar circumstances, I mean, that's just, that's just primitive. That's, that's backwards. <laughs> Between the Skittles uh, and the M&Ms and, and now the textbooks on the shelf, this is really upsetting you. I think Michigan's more of a Kit Kat kind of state. Maybe <laughs> Skittles just doesn't do it for your average Michiganer. Michiganer? They're called Michiganders. Michiganders. And, and if you're from the Upper Peninsula, you're called a Uper. 
how do you take some place like that seriously? Oh. Michiganders? Are they gandering at things? No. Uh, what else are you going to call, call them? Michiganians? Well, it does take out the kind of confusing gander part. There's no D in Michigan, is there? Um, I'm no expert, but... It sounds like we're we're winding down because I think we, so. we've lost our train of thought <laughs> and we're talking about gandering. Um, so. Isn't gander a verb? To gander? To look at things? To over to oversee something? Uh, I guess so, but, but we were talking about higher things like um, instructional technology and now we're talking about... The and then you brought us down with Michigan. You brought us down. No, you said Michigan doesn't teach world history anymore. Yeah, that was it. That was a high-level comment, and then you, you started making fun of their name. Well, how do you how do you, how else do you treat Philistines of this nature who say, you know what, world history, we don't really need it. Maybe they've seen the error of their ways since you left. Um, let, let's hope so, because let's hope so. Um, we, we've had about a, a generation of, of students who have made their way into public life. They hold jobs now and. Um, pay taxes history is it's easy right that's you know doesn't take much to learn no we said we weren't going to curse on this podcast we need to watch that you're dr bourgeois you're dr bourgeois but tread lightly my friend history is not easy i mean sure it can be but there are elements of it that can be challenging okay well i think you you've express that I, I, we, we, need to, we need to get into this a little bit more because it's it's one of your many buttons that i can push yes and, I, and i've said before i always find you much more interesting when you're worked up and angry i only myself to blame really you do well, let's um let's um roll the music it's probably rolling now because this probably so uh, we've deteriorated uh say goodbye <laughs> Miller. Uh, goodbye here, Dr. Bourgeois. Goodbye here, Miller. <laughs>